Um, we have been going through the New Testament in this class. We've got a mar- marvelous opportunity this morning. This morning, it, it it is not orchestrated. We truly are on Second Peter, or as uh, Donald Trump would say, to Peter. And that's what I'd say. And actually, that is the way they say it over in England. So, so it is. And uh, but. I've decided I was talking to one of our people who's an engineer in here, and he says, you know, we really ought to just go ahead and write it right. It's Peter squared. But then with Peter Williams being here from Cambridge, Tyndall House, I've decided that the whole class itself just needs to be called Peter Cubed. And so we've got Peter on Peter squared, and it's a marvelous thing. And the final touch would be if I could convince Lynn Kohick to come up here as well because she's from Wheaton. She just finished teaching a class on on Peter. And I said to her at lunch yesterday, I was with her and her husband and, and Ben at lunch, and I said, well, you should be up there with me and Peter Williams. And she said, don't you dare. So instead, I'll just put the question mark, and I've told Lynn, if we get something wrong, throw something at us, and then we'll know to fix it. Um, our conversation this morning on the book of Second Peter, you do not have a handout, in part because I didn't know how we were going to teach this thing together, and so this is, is not rehearsed and it's not practiced, but there has not been uh, uh, um, us avoiding it. We've done some work together on the PowerPoint, but, but it wasn't in time to be able to put a written lesson together for you. So Mark Christmas and your crew got the day off, and thank you for, again, for always being so diligent to get those lessons printed out. That's amazing. Um, All right, so I thought we'd start with the Rembrandt picture of Peter in prison. And Peter is in prison when he's writing this second epistle. Uh, I am one who believes that, that Peter is responsible for this second epistle. There are some issues of authorship that are a little bit of what we touched on last week looking at 1 Peter. There are also um, uh, some particular issues of authorship with this book. In particular, 2 Peter itself is very closely aligned in some passages with the short one-chapter book of Jude. And so we're going to look at some of the alignment of 2 Peter and Jude when we get to the book of Jude as we get uh, further down this road of the the New Testament study. So um, with that, we're going to start out with the idea of what Peter's got to say. And I think Peter's writing this from prison. There are three passages. I'll deal with the first one on prison. And then I'm going to ask Peter to deal with the hard two. So the first passage that lets us have an idea of this is Peter is clearly toward the end of his life as he's writing. In 2 Peter 1.14, one fourteen, he says, I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So if you take into account, as we look at this letter, take into account the idea that the author is writing with a recognition that the end of his days is nearby. Uh, I, I often like to quote Bono on this line, uh, uh, slow down, the end is not as far as the start. And, and there are many of us in here where that's true. We're closer to the end than we are the beginning. And, and Peter is writing this very close to the end. And at the time he's writing it, he's clearly somewhere uh, uh, in chains. Church history teaches us he's imprisoned under Nero, about to be uh, uh, executed. Peter's got two passages that he'll reference here. First, we have, well, you can speak for a moment. Well, it's great to be with you all this morning, and thank you very much, uh, Mark, for uh, having me here. And I just thought it was, as I read through the passage, and I'd been challenged by a, a friend to think of it in light of uh, Peter being in prison, the text doesn't itself doesn't say he's in prison, but when you try and put the letter at a time in Peter's life, it really makes sense that he is in prison at this time. And there are just some thoughts that... When you think of prisons back then, they were pretty dark places. And so as you read wording like this, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Remember, that's written by someone in a dark place. And so when you look out and you see uh, a lamp, then suddenly I mean, and there would be um, some reflections of lamps in a, in, a, um, in a prison every now and then. That would be the way the light would, would come into that, that dark place. You could actually 
he's meditating on it. He's thinking about how this is teaching him something about the prophetic scriptures. Of course, it says in Psalm 119 that your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And so he's thinking about scripture and how it just lights up a dark place. There's another text as well where he's talking about the judgment on the angels. He goes through a series of um, uh, groups that were judged, one of them being angels, and he talks about how they were put in chains. Well, normally in those days, people in prisons were put in chains because it's one of the ways you make sure people don't actually um, escape. So as he meditates on his chains, he's also thinking that there were beings um, that have been uh, chained even uh, more permanently. His chains are just temporary. His, he's soon going to be putting off the tent, uh, which is its body, and going to be with God. And yet he's also thinking about this as a picture of judgment. So very much thinking about how the environment he's in is uh, framing the way he's writing. I, I really like the way Peter... Uh, if we understand that this is happening in his life, and so even here in, in the chains, he references chains of gloomy darkness. So he is in that dark place, uh, uh, probably underground to some degree, uh, certainly not a window lit room. He's in the chains, and and I like the way he's able to look at his surroundings, and from his surroundings of life, Find illustrations of God, God's goodness, God's judgment, but, but, but the reality of God infuses the circumstances of his life with a greater depth of meaning than he would otherwise have, than the ordinary person would have. Because I look at that and I think I want to be the same way. I want the reality of God and what God is about and what God's doing to infuse the circumstances of my life that to the unregenerate, to the unsaved, might look totally, totally different. But for me, there's some special meaning because of how they're, they're able to help me further understand my Lord and what he's about. And, and I, I like that. And in that regard, Pete sent me this email on this with his PowerPoint. And, and Peter in his PowerPoint said, you know, it's really striking to me how grateful Peter is in the midst of what for many of us would be the most miserable of circumstances. I'm curious, Peter, what you meant by that. Well, one of the things I find when I look at this letter is it's probably got some of the most extreme statements of the privileges that Christians have that you'd find in the entire New Testament. I mean, other letters with quite extreme statements like Ephesians, also probably prison letter. Um, and here, you just look at the opening verse and it talks about Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, he's writing to um, people out there, and the us must be like apostles. And he's saying, you have the same st- uh, standing of faith as we have. He then goes on uh, to verse 3. His, uh, Christ's divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is a a really strong statement to say, and and the word all comes early in this sentence to be particularly emphatic, and to say there's nothing lacking for life and godliness. You would have thought you're sitting sitting in a prison. There's really something lacking in your life, um, and actually, there's nothing lacking in Peter's life for um, godliness. And then he talks about how this all comes through knowledge of him who's called him to glory and excellence, and he's given all of the things. And then it will talk about he's granted us precious promises so that through them you can become partakers of the divine nature. Now, Christians don't believe that they become God like um, in some beliefs. I won't name any. Mark may wish to. (coughs) But partakers of the divine nature is a pretty strong statement, isn't it? That there's something so much of God that is somehow infused into us by the Holy Spirit, by his work in us. That's a pretty strong statement. And how we've escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. You would have thought the last thing you'd done in a prison is escape. But here he is talking about, he's in prison, he's saying, I've escaped. You know, escape the corruption. I mean, that's, it's just astounding uh, language. And then what he says... For this reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And the way the word that's used there for supplement is exactly the same word as we have in verse 
11, in this way they will be richly provided for you an entrance. And the thing about this supplement word is it's something that you already have. And he's saying you need to put all these things together. So in other words, he, all of the list of virtues, he's not just saying that you need to get them, and, and he lists some virtues there from verses 5 through to uh, 7. He's saying, actually, you've already got all of the you need for that. So these just extreme statements of what we have just strike me as a, as a guy in prison. I mean, what was he saying this sort of thing for? Yeah. Uh, I will chime in here. It's, there's an, uh, an interesting parallel between these supplement statements of Peter and what we find in one of the Dead Sea Scroll fragments from the Essene community. The Dead Sea Scroll fragment was probably written based upon the, the handwriting and, 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 and a lot of the old Sea Scrolls, they'll date by fonts in a sense, if you think in 21st century. So if you've got a font that was just invented by someone and it makes it into the word program or into a PowerPoint program, then you can know that the whatever you're reading in that font was not done before the font. So they're able to, by the way letters are shaped, they're able to date fairly well a lot of these scrolls. So the scroll fragment that, that I'm referencing here is one that was dated probably somewhere between 50 years before the birth of Jesus to about the time Jesus was born. So it's a well-known text. Uh, uh, or at least has an ability to be a well-known text by the time Peter's writings in the mid-60s, let's say, of this of this uh, uh, era uh, uh, after the birth of Jesus. So um, here's what the, the text says in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's got the same ad or supplement language, and it says, if you seek um, people of understanding, supplement in learning, supplement justice with modesty, Supplement the way with strength, knowing the way, as men of truth supplement righteousness, as people uh, who have loving kindness, chesed, um, supplement humility. And it's the same principle that Peter's talking about, because if you look at the first supplementation, and, and I can, I wrote them down so that I'd have them. I should have just brought the, the, the fragment for you to look at, but people of understanding, Increase in learning, supplement, add to it learning. Well, if you've got understanding, you've already got learning. So he's not saying don't do it, but it's this chain concept. Because one should call forth a reinforcement of the other. And it's saying, you know, I I might have a gift, but that doesn't mean I can't grow in the gift. So when you think about adding or supplementing in this chain that Peter puts here, think about it in terms of not getting something you don't already have, but think about it in terms of growing from where you are. Now, everybody in here is at some station in life, right? Uh, Hopefully, a couple of zombies in here, but everybody else at some station in life. Do you want to be there tomorrow? Absolutely not. Don't we all want to grow? Don't we want to be better tomorrow than we are today? So this isn't, gee, add these things you don't have. This is grow. This is a a growth concept. So grow your faith with virtue. Apply yourself to acting on your faith. Make an effort to grow your virtue with knowledge. If you don't know better what to do and how to be, then you're going to have trouble doing and being better. So you add to it, you supplement, you grow in knowledge. And you grow in your knowledge with self-control. You've got to not only know these things and learn these things, but you really need to work on growing in your ability to exercise that self-control, to exercise steadfastness, that that resoluteness, uh, godliness, brotherly affection, Brotherly affection with love. So now I get to ask Peter one of the problem passages. And and I have not warned him at all. This is coming. This is really fun for me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is like, this is like, he, and, and Pete, bless his heart, he emailed me or called me, I don't remember which one, and said, hey, I'm going to be in Houston. I get in Saturday night. I don't have anything Sunday morning. Um, uh, uh, and before he could say much more, I said, oh, yes, you do. You're, you're going to be helping me in class. 
and uh, he was very gracious to do it. So here's the passage that lots of people like to talk about at the end of John. Mm -hmm. Jesus has been resurrected. He's eaten breakfast. They're on this, the, the Lake Knesset, the, the Sea of Galilee. He says that when they finish breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me because the, Peter calls himself at the beginning of, of Second Peter, um, Simeon Peter. Simeon is a, a Greek way of saying Simon. Simeon Peter. Simon, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Second time, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Now, in John's writing, we have two different words for love that are used through here. Mm -hmm. um, um, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agapao, which is, um, we think agape, okay? But agape love is not always what we think it is. It can be used for lots of different ways of love. Peter shifts and uses the word phileo, mm -hmm. a, a, a friend love. Now, they shift back and forth between those. That can't be lost on Peter. He's got to remember that in his life. And yet he uses those words in Second Peter mm -hmm. 1. He says he wants you to grow with brotherly affection. That's the word that Peter kept using for love. And then brotherly affection with agape love. All right. So Peter, is there anything to all of that? How do we understand all of that? Or do we just ignore it? I know we certainly don't ignore it. Um, what I'd say, though, is that when we understand the sequence in 2 Peter, the, the closest parallel I would find would be something like Galatians 6 verse 10, which said, let's do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. There's a, a hierarchy that uh, those who are believers should be showing love to everyone, but there are those who are their brothers and sisters, their family, that they have a prior duty to show love to. And I think that that's why there is a... Um, a sequence here that we have in, in 2 Peter, 2 Peter as you call it, uh, where you, you go through um, brotherly affection, that means affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ, through to love generally. The thing that's going on in, in um, John 21, and a lot of people make a, a big deal about the fact we've got different words for love. We've also got different words for sheep, sheep and lambs. We've got different words for feed and shepherd. So if I want to make a big thing about one of them? Am I also going to make a big thing about the other ones? And so I think there's enough um, variety between these phrases uh, that, that I don't want to make a big thing about one set of varying phrases and not about the others. So I'd, I'd challenge anyone who wants to say that there is meant to be some major um, progress. And when I was in Boston last week, uh, in fact, after the service, someone was coming up to me, a Greek, telling me about this uh, amazing difference that there was in John 21. Uh, and uh, I listened very politely, I think. Um, but <laughs> what, 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 this is on the internet, by the way, right now being live cast. That's fine. That's fine. And if you're in um, Boston, we love you. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, but what I would say is you just got to look at everything that's going on. And the fact that we have this variation in the imperative about there are two different words for feed. Uh, it also, in our translations, it comes out as lambs and sheep. Again, two different words. I just say be careful and be consistent. Okay. So um, if we go back to the PowerPoint now. <laughs> Here's the premise. Think about Peter as a real person for a moment. Peter, here's a fellow who starts out in life, we can fairly assume he's following the family occupation. He's a fisherman. If you've ever been to the Holy Lands, the Sea of Galilee, don't be thinking of it like the Mediterranean Sea. Think about it as maybe four or five times the size of Lake Conroe. But it's also called Lake Knesseret or Gennesaret. It's, it's a lake. And Peter fishes the lake from a village that, that he's grown up in. He probably deals with uh, at the Greek language, at least as a merchant. 
because you don't just fish, you sell your fish. You have to deal with other fishermen. You have to deal with lots of things. That is an area where there are Greek cities. And, and, and so Peter grows up, but I doubt he in his wildest dreams ever thought he would follow some carpenter rabbi for three years and stop fishing. And not only follow the carpenter rabbi, but follow him all the way down to the big city, Jerusalem. And not only follow him down to the big city of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself, big city compared to Capernaum, but compared to Rome, it's, it's like a backwater town. Peter ultimately goes to Rome. Peter becomes the major pillar, one of the major pillars within the early church. But it was a long road and he was a real person. Now here's the pitch. We know from reading the text that Peter doesn't start out to be so high and mighty and strong. This is the man who denies the Lord three times. So my question for Peter Williams is this. It's striking how grateful Peter is while in prison in Rome about to be killed for his faith. Oh, he could recant. But he doesn't, I mean, he's not going to recant. This is, he's seen the risen Lord. He's interacted with him. You can't just recant. Why is Peter so different here than the Peter we see before the death of Christ? Why is he so strikingly grateful here when basically he was scared to death before? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are, there's a dramatic change in Peter after the resurrection and his restoration, which we just talked about in John chapter 21, the anointing of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost just makes a huge difference and he's very bold. So in that uh, 50 day period, there's been a dramatic change um, and, and it may not have all have happened on one particular day. But even after that 50 day period and after Pentecost, we see further changes. So for instance, when he first becomes a uh, follower of the risen Jesus, he hasn't sorted out how the Gentiles are going to fit in. You see that in Acts chapter 10 where he learns this lesson not to call anything or anyone unclean. And so I think it's, it's perfectly legitimate to see development in him and sanctification. And so what you see when you have a letter like uh, to Peter or for that matter to Timothy in Paul's life where these are a last testament you really see a maturity everything's inspired but you you just see how God's um, uh, message is coming through the wisdom that's been acquired in a godly life as well so I'd, I'd say we really see that and that focus on what is of eternal value is really striking one of the key things that comes through uh, this book to me is about what is of eternal value what versus what's what's temporary. So I think it's both the sudden change of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and then the work through Peter's life uh, 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 over decades. Okay, so is it fair for us, if we go back to the Elmo for a moment, is it fair for us, I, I wrote down what you said, you see a maturity in Peter. Mm-hmm. Is it fair for us to go backwards now from the Peter passages that we're looking at and, and go back into where we were, where Peter told his readers to supplement their faith with virtue, mm -hmm. virtue with knowledge, with self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Is it fair to say that those were things that had happened in Peter's life and he's speaking out of experience as he has grown in the Lord and he's seen his faith from Matthew 16. Mm -hmm. You're the son of God. Mm -hmm. He's seen his faith be added to and supplemented with these things as he's grown and grown to the point where he's done those things that Jesus charged him to do the brotherly affection and love for the, the church. Yes, absolutely. So I think the normal Christian experience should be growth in faith. And the perhaps the thing we're struggling with is we want to say, well, every time these people write scripture or when they're apostles, they're speaking with that apostolic authority. Isn't that like fully from God? And because we don't want to go from not so fully from God to later on in their life where they're really mature, fully from God, we're worried about having a layer of maturity. And I'm not saying that 
he increased in uh, the accuracy with which he wrote scripture uh, from 1 Peter to 2 Peter. They're both absolutely accurate. They're both absolutely inspired. I'm saying that in his personal walk with God, um, God drew closer to him. Um, For instance, when he says, God's shown me that I'm soon going to be putting off this tent, that's a realization he hadn't had at an earlier point. He had been told um, by Jesus in John chapter 21 about the sort of death he would have, that one day he would follow uh, where he didn't want to go uh, and that he would glorify um, God in that way. So he, he knew that. But actually, um, God progressively revealed more of what that would mean uh, and he submitted to that. And let's remember, it's not just Peter, it's not just Paul who grows. Jesus Christ himself is said to grow in maturity in the, in the book of Hebrews, to have, have come to a maturity through suffering, which is a, a phenomenal thing to say. Or in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, where it says that the child grew in wisdom. And so uh, if the Son of God can grow in wisdom while being perfect all the way along, why can't other people, like apostles, also grow in wisdom? I think it, it, it seems that's the, the United Testament of Scripture. Okay, so now personalize it. We've got hundreds of people here. We've got hundreds of people who watch this on the internet. How do we take this and, and, and apply it in our lives so that, that we find <laughs> tomorrow we are better than we were mm-hmm. today? Well, maybe a couple of principles. Firstly, that we should all be looking to grow. And, that, and uh, if an apostle can grow, there's room for growth for everyone. And the other thing I really like about this uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 is it's one step at a time. Notice how this list goes, that you start uh, by... you start with one virtue and you add progressively onto this for very this very reason it supplements your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so on and so it allows you to think of this as as incremental um, we can't all take on everything uh, at once you know we're very finite we, we can't simultaneously think about multiple things so just focus on what's the step that God wants me to take. God doesn't want you to do dramatic things today. He wants you to take simple steps of obedience today. So I hope we all uh, pray and, and spend time closely with God, meditating on his word and, and asking him for guidance every day. And just those little steps of obedience accumulate. Um, and so good things are achieved that way. All right. Marvelous. So if we go back to the PowerPoint... Peter's writing from this prison. He's remarkably grateful. We can see why he's grown in the Lord and, and God has produced some wonderful things in his life. Now, if we look at the book itself on the whole, and I'm going to, um, uh, if we have time, we'll come back to, to the soteriology of, of this passage that I'd highlighted. But instead, let's, let's look at the outline of the book. Chapter one, we have glory. Mm-hmm. That's what we've been talking about. Chapter two. Others offer corruption. Chapter 3. The corruption is going to end, but the glory is going to stay. Or will be, will be greater, actually, in a sense. Will be brought to fruition. Mm-hmm. All right, Peter, comment on the structure, if you would, please. Yes, what I was trying to do, I, I came up with a structure, is, is to ju- try and simplify this in my mind. But what you've got to remember is that letters back then aren't structured the way we like to structure things. We like to structure things point one, two, three, point A, B, C, and they don't. It's a one flow of argument. But when I'm looking at the themes that come through, one of the uh, clear themes on the one hand is about glory, uh, things that last, things that have real value, uh, things that are precious, uh, things that are righteous. And on the other hand, there's a lot of emphasis in chapter 2, which we might dip into a little bit, about how there, there is just terrible corruption. And we see that um, sin gets punished in a number of ways. One is it will be punished finally. Um, two is it's punished within time as a sign of final punishment. And thirdly, it's punished... Um, through the results of the sin itself. So if you like, sometimes punishment is seen actively as God uh, intervening and punishing, and sometimes it's almost within the structure of the bad thing itself, it brings about its own punishment. And so whatever way it is, doing bad is bad for you. (laughs) 
You can't practice vice virtuously. <laughs> okay. Now, I, as Peter sent me his suggested talking points through this, um, uh, I had to use his language on this next slide. Peter says, our Peter, says that that Peter um, has some weird ideas. And, and um, weird was our Peter's word, not mine. Um, but I did add the lampshade. Um, here are the weird ideas that Peter talked about, and I, and I want us to have a chance to discuss them with you. Weird ideas from Second Peter. First, this idea that we've actually been given everything. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that, that Peter referenced earlier, but, but we have it within the framework of what Peter says, and he writes it in a way that really underlines. We would, we would, if, if, we were translating this in a in a uh, in an emphatic Bible, which I've threatened Peter with trying to get him or someone else to do. Um, in the emphatic, if we go back to the Elmo, please. Thank you. In the emphatic Bible, in our English, we read, "His divine power has granted to us all things." In in the the Greek, the all things is at the very beginning of this sentence to emphasize it. So we'd need to like make it bold and underline it. Because Peter's saying that, that God's divine power has granted to us all things. And he really wants that all things emphasized. All things that pertain to life and to godliness. That doesn't mean all things. There are some things that don't pertain to life and godliness. But all of the things that are within his set mindset that pertain to life and godliness, God has granted to us from a... I think it's an aorist verb, so from just a global perspective, we might say, um, uh, he's granted us all things. Sounds like Ephesians a little bit to me, but but talk to us about that. Yeah, so I think we've already said uh, something about that, but when I say it's a weird idea, I mean weird to us. I'm not saying it's weird in the sense of it, it doesn't make, make sense. It's just a really striking thing um, that the language of the New Testament will uh, speak in this way. You find these sort of things also in Romans 8. Just the, the language of the privileges we already have. And so we come to church sometimes to be fed spiritually. We, we want to have more. And sometimes we've forgotten what we already have. The amazing promises that God has made to each one of us. And um, the use of the word promises um, there in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very super great promises. And uh, just that we should hang on to those, the many uh, promises in Scripture, they are bigger than any mind can grasp. Um, if the, we, We've mentioned, for example, the Ephesians passage where Paul writes... In Ephesians 1, 3, a blessing upon God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with all or every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Um, same principle? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's get practical for a moment. What does that mean for you and me? Uh, I try to internalize some of this myself, and, and, and as I listen to Peter explain it, or as I listen to Peter write it the first time, um, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I'm going to leave from here. I've got a splendid chance to eat lunch with some marvelous people, and then I've got some work I've got to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sorry. I know it's like mm-hmm. our Christian Sabbath. i got to do it. i got to get it done, and, and I'm going to do some work today. And then tomorrow I've got nasty work to do. And this week coming up, I got to go to Dallas and I got to go to New York and I got to do all of this different stuff and I got to go to Fort Worth. <laughs> now, somehow in the midst of this, God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. I have been given by his divine power all the things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I don't believe that I live in two worlds. I don't believe I have the Peter Williams world where I've got all of the blessings and then I've got my work world where I've got to deal with work stuff. And I'll get back to Peter's world by Sunday um, and probably during the week because I'll have to write the Sunday lesson. But so these are one world. 
So Peter, how does it make a difference to us mm-hmm. when we leave the confines of this building and we're back into that trying to deal with health issues or money issues or family issues or work issues or, or just trying to get food on the table or trying to, to clean the garage or trying to... to, to I mean, how does this make a difference to us? So for Peter, if we imagine him in prison, it didn't get him out of the prison and it didn't mean he wasn't going to have his life end soon. So what this doesn't mean is you're not going to suffer. It doesn't mean everything's going to go well, but it, it's talking about the, the um, things that matter most because our calling in life is not success. Our calling is obedience. Okay, faithfulness. So what it says uh, when uh, Christ is, is talking um, to Satan in, in the wilderness, being tempted, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, telling you that, this is Matthew 4, 4, that food is only a relative necessity. It's not an absolute necessity. There's only one necessity, and that's the word of God for us to follow. Or when we see um, Christ talking about, uh, in Luke's gospel, how God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Or in the letter of James, he'll give wisdom to those who ask. These things, wisdom, the Holy Spirit, God's strength, God's presence, God never holds back on those things when we ask aright. And, and, and so there may be all sorts of things that you won't get uh, in, in terms of wealth and ease of life. And we're actually called to take up our crosses and follow Christ. So we shouldn't expect it to be hard. Peter is at this point following Jesus on that, uh, on that path of taking up his cross. That's why he's where he is. But he's been given everything he needs to live a godly and faithful life. And God will take care of the fruit. All right. So here's my passage for you if you're wondering about this stuff. In light of what Peter's just said. Psalm 16, mm-hmm. verse 11. Mm. God, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, whatever you've got in front of you the rest of today or tomorrow or this week, uh, you've got hip surgery coming up. You've got whatever you've got. God's made known to us the path of life. And so we have fullness of joy in his presence. So I, for me, the key is I'm taking God with me on everything I got to do this week. He's going to be in New York. He's going to be in Dallas. He's going to be in Fort Worth. The good Lord is coming with me everywhere I go, and I may have to do some real stinker jobs this week from a human perspective. But if I've got the Lord with me, I've got a fullness of joy because I know that the path of life I'm walking is one he's made known. I mean, I'm not taking the Lord out of his plans to bring him with me on my plans. What I'm doing now is following the path of God. And if I see it this way, and I understand that that's what we're about, it doesn't matter what we're going, you can be going through hip surgery, but you're on the path that God's got for you, and it may be a prison, it may be a hospital, it may be whatever, but in that is fullness of joy because we're obedient. And that's what it's about. It's not about how much serotonin in our brains firing off, It's not even about how many carbohydrates I've buzzed off those peanut butter cookies. It is about the fullness of joy being in the presence of the Lord. Yep. Fair? Okay, back to the Elmo. Let's keep going. Uh, I mean, to the PowerPoint. All right. Weird idea number two. Yeah, I mean, how, how much time should we spend on each one of these weird ideas? I've got right, four, wanna, four of them. Yeah, you want to skip to uh, we, I might, got 15 I might, more minutes. I might just say this one pr- pretty briefly, but the second half of chapter two is really striking because in contrast to those who might say, well, isn't this all made up? Peter assures us he was there on the holy mountain, that's the Mount of Transfiguration, and he saw Jesus in his glory. So we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is 116. 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was born to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And what's so striking there, we think, why have the transfiguration at all in the Gospels? It's one of those things that's recorded Matthew, Mark, Luke. Why have it? And it is a foretaste of that super glory that one day we will see Christ in all his glory. And there were people there who were, were able to witness. And so Peter, as one of those privileged three people who had seen that, really wants to bear testimony to the reality of that as a foretaste of um, the second coming. So one of the things just to remember about the transfiguration, it's not just in the Gospels, it's also in 2 Peter, that it's a foretaste of the glory to come. Yeah. I, I, I love to read this passage uh, uh, in, in the Greek to, to look at the words that are used. Of course, myth is a Greek word. It's just the English version of that word. But But so many people want to look at The resurrection of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus as a cultural or a a, a mythical or a fable addition to the life of a very good man. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see Peter dying for a fable. Mm -hmm. And he's making it real clear. This is not a fable. I mean, Peter's not going to be martyred as a Christian if it's a fable. He's just going to say... Hey, look, man, that was a fable. That was a myth. You know, that's like uh, Greek myths. There are lots of them. Doesn't mean you believe them. You draw moral lessons from them. But Peter's willing to say, kill me. Take my life. I give everything for this because I believe it. And there's a quotation from a lawyer in the early church that said that the growth of the early church was, was from the blood uh, of martyrs, that that was the seeds from which the early church grew, because people were impressed that that these folks were giving their lives for it, and I, mm-hmm. I, I really like that. All right, we got to keep rolling. Okay, so weird idea number three is just about the way punishment works, and this is trying to take in the whole of chapter two. So chapter two is a bit of a diatribe, um, uh, insulting, if you like, those who were. Um, False teachers, so chapter 1 is giving you true teaching. And then chapter 2 verse 1 begins saying, but there were false teachers around uh, at the time of the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers around uh, now. So false prophets in the Old Testament, false teachers now. And they'll creep in, that's the way they do. And what will happen is they will get punished. Um, and the way uh, you can see them punished well, there are three groups of people who get um, uh, punished, or three groups of beings, let's say. Uh, verse 4 tells you about uh, angels. We probably won't spend much time on the angels today, um, but that, that's a whole big theme in itself. Chapter f- uh, Verse 5 is all about the whole world um, at the time of the flood, which wasn't spared. And chapter 6, sorry, verse 6, is about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says he, um, God turned them to ashes, condemning them to its distinction extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. In other words, that those punishments in the past actually had a purpose of teaching people um, after that. But then he will talk through other ways in which um, people um, are punished. And one of them is where he talks about this um, person from the Old Testament called Balaam. um, And uh, he's there in verse 15. And interesting, Balaam, son of Beor, has also turned up uh, in, uh, as a name outside the Bible, um, as someone written on a plaster wall, a plaster from the 9th century BC, from somewhere near where Balaam came from. So he was, he was well known enough that people wrote him uh, stories about him on their wall. And it says, who loved the gain from wrongdoing. He was really um, after the uh, financial reward to do a false prophecy. And he actually got into being rebuked He's the wisest guy you could possibly imagine. He gets rebuked by the dumbest animal, um, uh, the donkey. And so what you, f- you find is there's a fitting nature to the way the, the, um, the rebuke happens, that, that it really is, uh, he's a wise guy. He's supposed to be a seer, you know, seer. He can see everything. He can't see the angel. The donkey can. So there we have it. 
If we're going to go through uh, chapter two real quick, uh, I, I pause as I was reading through this because of chapter two, verse nine. Mm -hmm. This is a great passage. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now skip that last phrase and just start with the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I'm going to quiz and, and you shout it out if you've got a clue. What well-known Bible verse is being echoed by Peter here? Anybody want to shout it out? The Lord's Prayer. This word rescue and trials, those are in the Lord's Prayer. God is asking the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those trespasses against our debts, debtors. Lead us not into temptation. That is trials, same word. But deliver us, kreomai, I believe. Same word here for rescue from the evil one. So this idea... We've been praying to the Lord. The early church, we indicate, we have indications, prayed the Lord's Prayer three times a day. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptations. You've been praying for Him to do it three times a day. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. Don't think for a moment he's not able to rescue you even while he's condemning those who are doing this evil. Which sets up chapter 3. So if we yeah. go back to the weird idea in chapter 3. Okay, so the weird idea in chapter 3 begins with, as in the last days, it's chapter 3 verse 1, um, people are going to come along saying, hey, isn't everything just continuing uh, forever. I mean, what, why would you think that the world's going to come to an end and God's going to judge it? Haven't things always continued? And Peter says, but they're forgetting that actually the world, there was a, a different world in the past and that was, um, overcome by a flood. And just in the same way as the world was overcome by water back then, it will be overcome by fire, uh, in the future. And then the question comes, well, wh why is it, is there such a delay? And in this, uh, you have a very famous verse, chapter 3, verse 8. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So in other words, time's different for God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, the reason why... God is slow in punishing is precisely because he desires people to come to faith. And so what we find is that is echoed again in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The patience in delaying the second coming as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, he speaks in the, uh, them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And what I love about that is Peter said that some bits of Paul were hard to understand, but he also says that they do that, uh, they, people twist them as they do the other scriptures. And that word scriptures means, can just mean writings. But when you're talking about things that people systematically twist, people don't systematically twist any old writings. He means particularly the writings of God. But you see that theme both in Paul then and here in 2 Peter, that the reason for delay is God's heart. God's heart of mercy that people should come to faith. Okay, so in this regard, the idea of... of um the ignorant and unstable twisting to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter, this is an advertisement of sorts. Peter, is there anything going on this summer at Tyndall House in Cambridge where people can better learn how to understand scriptures? Well, yes, actually, Mark, there is. Would Funny you that you should ask. About it? 
So um, I think it must be from the 11th to the 15th of July. Surely it would be the 11th Perfect to the 15th of July, wouldn't time. it? Um, where I, I've heard that there's a masterclass going on on the Gospels and that there will be um, teachers such as Simon Gathercole, who will be visiting we'll be in the library uh, in May. Uh, you uh, shortly. And um, we have Professor Steve Walton, Andrew Clark, uh, John Lennox, Gary Habermas. I will be doing a bit of teaching uh, there and some others. And um, Is Dirk there any place we could get information on this? Oh, I think there might be a table over there. Uh, which, which has information about the uh, masterclass on the uh, 11th to the 15th of July uh, over in Cambridge, England, where it will be beautiful weather and you'll get the opportunity to punt it down the cam. That is punted as in, in a gondolier sort of type thing, but it's called a punt. <laughs> and also eat in the dining hall that C.S. Lewis et in and other such things. So think about it. Yeah, might Philip Evans of American Tyndall House be able to give us some information about that? I, I, I believe he would, yeah. Wonderful. With that, let's go to points for home. <laughs> so as, as I put this lesson together for me, here are a couple of things I'm taking home with me. First, my try to. I'm going to try to make every effort to supplement my faith with virtue. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to conscientiously try when given choices, to choose the virtuous choice. I'm going to try to supplement my virtue with knowledge so I'll know what the virtuous choice is. I'm going to try to supplement my knowledge with self-control. I stopped at nine of Mark Wilkie's peanut butter cookies. Just saying, I've already got a good jump on it. I'm going to try and, and supplement my self-control with steadfastness, a, a, a diligence, a uh, uh, an endurance idea, uh, not just self-control for a moment, but but steadfast self-control. And I want godliness. I want brotherly affection. And I want love. And I'm going to work on that this week. I commit to you to, to be working on that. I hope you will as well. Point for home number two. Pay attention. Peter, you want this one? These false teachings are waterless springs and mists. Driven by a storm. So uh, what we've got to uh, reckon with is the fact that there are false teachers around and they look very promising. But when you uh, look through them, you realize that actually there is not going to be any fruit from following them. So just to um, have your eyes open about that. All right. So we pay attention to that. And then last, we, I'm, I want to be diligent this week. Peter says, since we're waiting for these promises of God... To be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And he links together our, our being, um, trying to walk in obedience to the Lord with being at peace. And so if I can this week walk in obedience to the Lord, regardless of what the world throws at me, regardless of my imprisonment, regardless of my circumstances, if I can be obedient to the Lord, there is a shalom peace that the world can't understand, but I can because I know who's in control. So with that, uh, would you join me in thanking Peter? Thank you. Thank you. And would you stand up and I'll bless you before we leave. Lord, we do in the presence of, of, uh, of each other and in the presence of your Holy Spirit, Pronounce blessings through Jesus upon all who listen to your word. I ask you to bless my brothers, my sisters, and my family that are here, and my friends that are here. Bless them this week with a conscious awareness of ways they can grow before you in obedience with all of the joy and the fullness of your presence and what that will mean to them in their life and the world they touch for you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you.